Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, as the bishop said to the actress, it's SST 237, the Henry Kaiser alternate versions, three inch CD. And why three inches? Why not? And we've got some special guests, Brent. Yeah, we've got Tom T.C. Constantin, and we've got David Gans on the show. So, you know, normally we just have one guest, usually, uh, unless, you know, a couple band members are getting interviewed together. But I asked one of these guys to be on the show, and I wasn't hearing back, so I asked the other one, and then they both got back to me, so I figured, what the hell. Do it, man. And you know what that's called, hey? Um, double dip? I was going to say two-banger, but double dip, <laughs> go for it. I, lo- I love it. I love it. Before we get into it, though, and they are great interviews, so cool, hang in there and listen to both of these interviews. They're just amazing. Your mind will be blown repeatedly. But before we do that, Brent, why don't you hit us with some spiels? Okay, I've got a um, podcast shout-out, SST edition. Okay, do it. Okay, so the always reliable Conan Neutron, um, he always has great guests. And uh, he's really good at having a conversation, which I totally appreciate. Like, you know, the ability to do that. It's its always just very natural. Yeah. Like, I can't do that. I have to have a list of questions, you know? Anyways, uh, the man in the van with a bass in his hand, Mike Watt, was on the show recently. Great chat with Mike, as always. Uh, he talks about actually starting the Watt from Pedro show and how it got started. Mm -hmm. Uh, He actually mentions this book, 40 Watts from Nowhere, A Journey into Pirate Radio by Sue Carpenter. Uh, She ran a pirate radio station out of her apartment in LA in the 90s. And if I understand it right, Watt started his show on her station. Uh, He kind of breezes past it in the interview. Like, you know, just a very brief mention, but I'll let you know, Ryan, because my copy of her book is in the mail. Oh, nice. Conan also recently had Mario Lally of sort of Quartet and Fatso Jetson and and a bunch of other bands on his show as well. I haven't had a chance to hear it yet, uh, but I I plan to do that really soon. Yeah, Conan's had lots of SST alum on his show and uh, all of the non-SST stuff that he has on too. All the noise rock musicians uh, always love checking that out. You bet. Uh, Lydia Lunch and Tim Dahl, and they're always great podcast. The Lydian Spin recently had Derek Bostrom on, and it's a great chat. My favorite part is uh, when he's kind of talking about what we were talking about a few weeks ago, and that's the impact kind of losing all the indie bands to majors had on the scene and to indie labels. Oh, yeah. You know, specifically SST he's talking about. You know, I don't want to put words in his mouth or whatever, but if I understand what he's trying to say, he basically says, well, he uses the word tent poles to describe these these bands that held up the distribution chain for indies. Mm. Like the bigger bands, when they left, really messed up the distribution. I think, you know, he kind of says, made it harder to get your stuff out there. And I, th- I think that's probably because, you know, SST would leverage the, the new, whatever, Sonic Youth to get the distributors to take some of the other stuff as well. For sure. Or it gave the label clout too. You know, what we've talked about so many times where you would just buy something on, on, on SST because of all these great records that you you had already. He said it way better than I'm saying it right now, so you should check that out. Um, and, and he's talking pre-Nevermind, by the way, you know, before the true major label boom. Keith Morris was on The Best Show talking off and free LSD, and it's so good. 
Tom asks him, of course, about being friends with Juan Cruchet from Rat, which he talks about in his book. <laughs> uh, and he, he, he talks about that in depth, um, which is really cool. And uh, he he talks extensively, probably more than I'm, I've ever heard him talk about the kind of legal drama between Ginn and Flag circa 2014. Mm. He really breaks it all down in a, in a way I'm not sure I've I've read or, or heard someone talk talk about it before. Super interesting, but also aggravating as a fan to hear it. Yeah, yeah. Steve Michener of, among other bands, Volcano Sons, made a return visit on one of my favorite podcasts, Rob Elsa's That Record Got Me High. Um, I've talked about that show before. His pick for this episode is Nevermind the Bollocks, and it's a super fun listen. Uh, this YouTube channel called the New York Hardcore Chronicles, hosted oh, by, yeah. Yeah, hosted by Joel Gostin and Steve Messina. Um, they have a lot of people on from that scene, you know, like Agnostic Front and Murphy's Law and those types of bands. But they also have other interesting guests like Greg Hetson, Doug Carrion, Ed Culver, Brian Baker, Chris D, tons more. And they recently had Paul Rossler on their show. Yep. It's super well made. Uh, it's a really impressive show, like, you know, the way they put it together. And it's a great interview with Paul. Yeah, we've mentioned that before. I'm pretty sure, if not because of the uh, the, the zines or books, but maybe even um, some of the, the, the film associated with that podcast. Yeah. Um, here's the, if, if you only check out one of my recommends this week, check out this one. This is new to me, this show, and I'm just totally, totally loving it. It's called deep focus it's actually a radio show that broadcasts from wkcr 89.9 fm in new york host mitch goldman has been at it for a while since 2008 uh, he's still going many of his shows are archived as podcasts what he does each week is he has a guest musician on and they they play and dissect rare archival recordings or bootlegs from the, the guest's favorite artists, mainly from the world of jazz and avant-garde. Just to give you an example, and I haven't had a chance to, to listen to all of these yet, and they're all three episodes. Like, I think it's a three-hour radio show, and he breaks it into three one-hour episodes, part one, two, and three. Vernon Reed has been on it a number of times. Uh, Melvin Gibbs did a three-parter on Ornette Coleman. And most recently, David Soldier did a thing on Miles Davis. Now, we had David on as a guest a few episodes back on 232. Super yep. interesting guy. So check this out. Mitch dug up a recording of Miles Davis live in 1974 in Connecticut at some super small local <laughs> club called The Shabu Inn uh, in front of like 50 people, uh, one of whom was David Soldier. He was in high school. <laughs> uh, this was Miles's rock phase. Pete Cozy is on guitar. Um, the set is just insane, insane, and it's a super good recording too. David kind of talks about how it just totally blew everyone's mind. All he had was all the older Miles records, like the with John Coltrane, mm. because that's all he could get where he was. And when he heard the set, which was like I said, very well recorded, you can just imagine what the audience was thinking. David was sixteen at the time. Yeah, they didn't show up for that Miles Davis, but that's the Miles Davis they got. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, and it was supposed to be a three-night set, and Miles didn't play the first night because uh, he he wasn't feeling well. Mm. If you if you know what I mean. Yeah, his uh, his embouchure was probably not ready to rock. Yeah, uh, just a few more, Ryan. This well-known metalhead uh, tattoo artist, Brittany Elliott, and her partner Johnny, son of Tom Araya, 
who was also a musician and a crew guy for various big name bands, have a podcast called The Haunted Chapel. And they recently had Wino of the Obsessed and St. Vitus, etc. Mm-hmm. on the show. There's a small amount of Vitus talk. He mentions he and Dave Chandler are talking again and, and kind of have, have reconciled. So that's cool. You never know. Maybe another Vitus record. Although I did love the, the Riegers fronted uh, Vitus record from a, from a few years ago. So it'd be great to have another one of those. He briefly mentions the documentary about him that is, I think, not quite out yet, but I think out very soon. He doesn't really give too many details on that. Uh, I'm definitely going to check that out. Uh, but, you know, with Wino and a few other artists, I've bitched about this before with him, as is so often the case with these delusional conspiracy theory people, all he wants to talk about is that crap. Like he just can't wait to dovetail every topic that comes up into his, into, into Biden stole the election. It's not even that it's new world order, David Ick bullshit and oh, or David Ike or whatever. I, I, I had to turn it off. Like, yeah, I love I'm the a- dude's music, but he's got a broken brain. Yeah. 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 I'm out. Yeah. Um, but the last I'll mention for listeners who haven't seen it yet, Lou Barlow and his partner Adele have a podcast called Raw yeah. Impressions. Have yeah. You, have you heard it? Just, I think, I actually, I think I just listened to part of the first one. Yeah. I haven't checked it out yet. It seems to be like just them shooting the shit about random stuff. And, you know, those types of shows don't really interest me, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I will check it out. Maybe, you know, I want to give it a fair shake and, um, that's just the impression I've gotten from the description, so maybe I'm not being fair. I, he does play music on it, I think, so I'll definitely check it out for that. Um, but there's just so many podcasts, Ryan. I know, man. Yeah. I usually only listen to one a week. Yeah. This one. <laughs> <laughs> what do you have, Ryan? That's it for you? That's it for me. All right, man. Well, I've got uh, Flea Market Finds Part 2. Okay. I was kind of hoping for a Dio doc. Uh, you teased it like three weeks ago, and I haven't barely slept since yeah no i'm not talking about Dio yet this is flea market finds part two not a sieve fisted find flea market finds part two i timed these so that they tied into these episodes because last week i did john kruth's midnight snack as a tie-in to the tar babies honey bubble episode because there's that wisconsin tie-in right right and this week as a tie-in to the henry kaiser episode i've got this record called french Frith, Kaiser, Thompson, Invisible Means. Have you ever seen this record before? I have seen it. I have never heard it. Wow. I mean, I I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, this, of course, is John French, otherwise known as Drumbo, from the Captain Beefheart Band. He is also on Crazy Backwards Alphabet with, uh, with Henry on SST 110. He does drums and lead vocals on this record. Fred Frith from Henry Cow. Fred is on bass on this record, and we've had Frith on the show with Henry as uh, as part of SST-147 with enemies like these, Who Needs Friends, SST-172, The Technology of Tears, and then also with Henry on the No Age Comp, SST-102. We've, of course, had Henry on the show before, 118, Devil in the Drain, uh, 151 with Scott D. of Colby on the Slide of Hand record, uh, which we'll talk about on this show later on. Uh, 182 as part of Everett Shock Ghost Boys, uh, 198 those who know history are doomed to repeat it, and then most recently 222 remarrying for money. So some great SST alum, and then on this record 
Richard Thompson, as in Richard and Linda Thompson, as in Richard Thompson from Fairport Convention. Yeah. Richard Thompson. I love some of those those records. Yeah, I don't know Richard Thompson very well. I, I mostly know him because of this comp. Do you know this one, Beat the Retreat? No. So this is uh, Beat the Retreat. This is a comp that came out on Capitol Records in 1994. It's uh, so- the songs of Richard Thompson. It has uh, Shoot Out the Lights, performed by X. Hmm. That would be cool. Turning of the Tide, performed by Bob Mould, backed by John Doe and DJ Bonebreak. It has For Shame of Doing Wrong by Sid Straw and Evan Dando. It has uh, Los Lobos doing Down Where the Drunkards Roll. It has uh, I Misunderstood by Dinosaur Jr. And, and at that point, it's Jay Maskus basically backed by Mike Watt. Hmm. Uh, Just the Motion by David Byrne. This is a great comp. And this is, I mean, I got it because of being fans of X and these SST bands, right? But that's... That's kind of the most I know about Richard Thompson. Yeah, well, I, I would check out that the album with Linda, Shoot Out the Lights. That would be a good place to start. Yeah, yeah. I've I've seen it forever, and I've never really dove into it. But I will after listening to this record. This record is from 1990 on Demon Records. And that's uh, the label founded by Andrew Lauder, Jake Riviera, and Elvis Costello. And uh, it's a very, very cool record. I mean, it suffers from a bit of the late 80s production sounds here and there. But I I really enjoyed this record. It was really surprising. It's their second record, too. Their first is called Live, Love, Larf, and Loaf on Rhino Records from 87. And check out what uh, Ira Robbins said about this combo. French, Frith, Kaiser, and Thompson. This is actually in the Henry Kaiser section of the Trouser Press Guide. And it says, Live, Love, Larf and Loaf is a much more pleasant supergrouping in which Kaiser, French, and Frith on bass are joined by British folk rock guitar whiz Richard Thompson. And he says it's a much more pleasant supergrouping in comparison to Crazy Backwards Alphabet. Hmm. He continues, The LP combines excellent post-Beefheart compositions by French with Thompson's acid-etched Anglo-mysticism and a remarkable Okinawan pop song Hi Sai Oji San. This is eclecticism at its finest. And then he talks about Invisible Means. Unfortunately, the second episode, Invisible Means, sounds incomplete, like a joke that doesn't come off. Far from unlistenable, with an odd, magnificent moment, the record is just spotty. Now, that really got me interested because if Invisible Means is not as good as the first record, I must get that first record. I have it. I, I think I've talked about it on the show, maybe. Live, Love, Larf, and Loaf? I believe so. And? Uh, well, I like it. Yeah. I, 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 I can't compare it to that one, but... Yeah, I gotta hear it. I gotta hear it. This has got some, just some really cool tracks on it, very unexpectedly for me, I must say. The track Peppermint Rock has kind of got, I mean, what I what I know about Richard Thompson, it sounds very Richard Thompson-esque. I, I want to call it like folky maritimes rock almost to the rain is just a haunting john french tune there's a song on it march of the cosmetic surgeons which is a weird operatic like theater type of song with lyrics that say we nip and tuck we lipo suck all day just (laughs) weird weird lyrics 
Uh, some great instros on here. The last track on this record, uh, Killing Jar, a Richard Thompson track, is amazing and has a great Henry Kaiser-like backwards masking guitar soloing on it. Just killer. Loved it, loved it. The photo on the back, too, is just amazing because it's it's got French, Kaiser, and Thompson all on the back. They're just rocking their their they're balding hey they've got right. like they're 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 just balding and then they're all rocking their wristwatches like super hard <laughs> and then you can see fred frith who just looks exhausted and you can't see below his waist but you know he's barefoot right. like just just for sure you can tell by the look on his face that they just had an insane jam sesh just killer i was really surprised by this record of my two flea market finds, I like this one better than John Cruth's Midnight Snack. Uh, I listened to this one a ton. Very, very cool. Check it out. Also engineered by Oliver DeSisso, who we've had on the show or we've we've talked about on the show before. Owner and engineer of uh, Mobius Music, who's had records by, you know, Dead Kennedys, Primus, Henry Kaiser, John French, Seven Seconds, um, a, a very legendary studio. So a cool listen, man. Maybe we should next time we see each other we should uh, we should swap invisible means for uh, live love larf and loaf. Yeah, maybe. Hey, right on, man. You want to get to these alternate versions? Yeah, man. History lesson part one. So Ryan, you mentioned a bunch of the the records that we've heard already with with Henry before, and there's a few more that I'll mention. You know, when we go through the tracks and stuff. So I'm not going to run them all down, but I'll just I'll just say I counted. And uh, this is our 14th release with Henry Kaiser on it. Now, not all those were under the name Henry Kaiser. Some He played on some other ones, but... Yeah, yeah. Pretty crazy. And unfortunately, Ryan, I'm pretty sure it's our last. Yeah, it's too bad. I've always appreciated Henry, but I definitely gained a new appreciation with this Invisible Means record. So, I don't know. Maybe my ears are getting larger. Yeah, as, maybe. As we heard last week, maybe my ears are getting larger. Man, like last Henry Kaiser, last Tar Babies, last Firehose. How are we gonna How are we gonna survive another 150 <laughs> episodes? I think we'll do it. Don't yeah. worry. Yeah, uh, I'm sure everybody out there knows this by now. But in case you're new to the show, uh, Henry uh, is a prolific avant-garde guitarist and composer, and a fixture on the San Francisco Bay Area music scene. He's still going hard. The release we're talking about today, alternate versions, is exactly what the title says alternate versions of some previously released songs and one from a forthcoming release at least at the time it was forthcoming we can get into that uh you know a bit further when we go through the tracks it came out in 1988 as you mentioned on this ridiculous format that for the most part was <laughs> pretty unique to sst the mini cd you know hard to say how many they would have manufactured of this probably not a ton uh, but fortunately, three of the four tracks are streaming uh, as they were later tacked on to other releases. So uh, again, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll mention that when we go through the tracks so people who don't have this can find them. So Brent, I've actually got a spiel on three-inch CDs out of Jim Rulin's excellent book, Corporate Rock Sucks, but I'll save that until after the interviews. For now, why don't I give you a spiel out of Jim's book on Henry Kaiser just to set us up um, for those who haven't followed along with all 14 releases uh, up to this one here. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, so Jim's talking about Ray Farrell and about artists that Ray Farrell brought into the label. And here he goes with Henry Kaiser. But Ray Farrell wasn't done yet. And here's Ray. 
Henry Kaiser was another old friend that I thought Greg would like, Farrell said, especially with their mutual love of the Grateful Dead. Kaiser was an avant-garde guitarist in the San Francisco scene who seemingly knew everyone, including Herbie Hancock and Captain Beefheart drummer John French. Just as Farrell predicted, Kaiser and Ginn clicked, which led to three records in 1987, Crazy Backwards Alphabet, SST-110, a project that included French and featured album artwork by cartoonist Matt Groening, the solo record Devil in the Drain, SST-118, and with enemies like these, Who Needs Friends, SST-147, which combines two previous collaborations with Fred Frith and adds some unreleased live cuts. Kaiser subsequently brought multi-instrumentalist and composer Elliot Sharp into the fold, and SST released records from several of his musical projects, including the solo album In the Land of the Yahoos, Tessellation Row, and Hammer Anvil Stirrup with the Soldier String Quartet and Bone of Contention. Kaiser also introduced Ginn to two more musicians who would make significant contributions to SST's explosion of experimental instrumental music, Glenn Phillips and slide guitarist Scott Colby. Phillips recorded Elevator with the Glenn Phillips Band and Colby, a frequent collaborator with Zoog's Rift, recorded Slide of Hand. So again, Kaiser left a huge mark on this label for a period. And so it is it is kind of an end of an era to have our final Henry Kaiser release on the show here. But what better way to do it than to hear from Tom and David? Yeah, so uh, what... what um... Jim mentions there kind of ties in with my theory about why this release even exists. And, uh, you know, it is obviously well documented that Greg, Greg Ginn is a deadhead. Um, we've heard this Grateful Dead cover Mason's Children on a previous episode, which we'll talk about when we get to the tracks. But uh, this one uh, features Tom T.C. Constantin on keyboards. Um, Tom was the keyboardist in The Dead from 1968 to 70 and played on three seminal albums, Anthem of the Sun, Oxamoxua, and Live Dead. Uh, so this is obviously pure conjecture on my part, but I have to assume when Ginn found out that this version existed, he leapt at the chance to have a, a former Grateful Dead member uh, with a release on his label. Totally. Put a three-inch CD on that. Yeah. Oh, I can easily see the conversation being like, okay, we have to put that out. Um, we, Hey, Henry, we've been doing these three-inch CDs that hold around 20 minutes of music. What else do you have kicking around that, that we could use to round out an EP? Yeah. Um, our other guest is David Gans. Uh, he's a Bay Area musician, journalist, broadcaster, mainly uh, chronicling The Grateful Dead, but other music also. You'll hear a bit about that in the interview. Along with his music and books, which you'll you'll also hear about, he is current. He currently hosts a Sirius XM call-in show on the Dead called "Tales from the Golden Road," along with fellow Grateful Dead expert Gary Lambert. Ryan, let's throw it over to this David Gans interview. Yeah. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by David Gans. David, thanks for being on the show. Uh, happy to be with you. What can I do for you? Okay, uh, well, you can start by telling me a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? Uh, I'm a California native, one of the few. Uh, I'm the son of a um, Brooklyn boy and his English war bride who got married at the age of 19 during World War II and moved to California uh, shortly thereafter, settled in the San Fernando Valley and had three kids, of which I'm the middle one. So I, I'm what you would consider a textbook baby boomer. <laughs> 
and lived. Uh, we moved to Northern California in 1966 when I was 12 years old. So I I consider myself uh, an Oakland native, even though I wasn't actually born here because I've lived in Oakland for 50 years. When was the first time you saw the Grateful Dead? March 5th, 1972. Any idea how many times you saw them? I stopped counting a while back. Um, I, I, I did not go on tour. I did not see like 100 shows in a year because by the time I got turned on to the Grateful Dead, I was already well into my own life. I was a musician already and I was playing my own music. And as much as I loved the Grateful Dead and as important as the Grateful Dead are to everything about me as a musician, I already was a musician when I joined that circus and so i and i never surrendered to it completely i had my own career so i didn't i didn't go to 100 shows a year but i've been to a few hundred over the years i'd go to all the shows in the bay area and occasionally got to see them out of town and stuff but Mm -hmm. quality over quantity sir for sure where was that first show that you saw winterland ah and uh, yeah, through a series of uh, uh, misfortunes to do with a car, we got there a little bit late. So the opening act was already on the stage. It was the Sons of Champlin under their new name, Yogi Flem. And because we got there late and I was blazing on acid, we wound up in the last row of Winterland where it was like 140 degrees up there. It was just as far away as you could be in the building. But it was um, a, it made a great impression on me anyhow. I'm assuming that one's been officially released. No, no, it's a. You know, there isn't even a really good solid recording of it. It's just it's, it was a. It was like the first show of the year, I think it might have even been, or the second show of the year. Um, you know, and it was just a one-off. It was a benefit. I, it wasn't connected to other shows or a tour or anything like that. So I, I think it was just a quickie that they threw together to raise money for somebody. And uh, they didn't really start their, their touring life in earnest until a little bit later in the year. And then the next shows I saw were Berkeley Community Theater in August. And I think one of those has been released. Okay. Who was the, the uh, influence that got you interested in playing music? Um, I, I played the clarinet when I was a kid, so I was reading music and playing music, you know, in 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 a not particularly deep or musical way, I must say. Mm-hmm. But in 1969, I was 15 years old, and I have an older brother and a younger sister, and both of them played play guitar. My brother was really into it, and I I don't remember the exact uh, mechanism by which it happened, but we sat down together, and he took a couple of my poems and set them to music and taught me the chords. And I later figured out that the music wasn't particularly original, but it got me launched. The first thing I ever played on the guitar was an original song. And uh, that set me on my life path. I didn't know it at the time, but that was going to be my life's path. And everything I've done in my life since then has been in service of music or being a musician. And I followed my my muse into playing music and writing music and writing about music and, uh, you know, wound up being a magazine journalist for about 10 years, publishing several books about uh, mostly about the Grateful Dead, but also one about talking heads and then wandering into the radio business also on dead related stuff. So I've I've done a lot of different things and worked in a lot of different media all of it on themes of music and in particular the grateful dead yeah i'm the 
the narrative seems to be that you almost stumbled into a, a career in journalism. Is that fair? Well, yeah, I, I didn't really form much of an intention to do anything. When I was in college in San Jose in 1970, I reviewed records for a local new, uh, underground newspaper. And I was looking for concert tickets and free records and stuff. So <laughs> writing about music led to, which I had a facility for. I mean, I'd always been a writer. I was My parents said I started reading really early and stuff. So I was always you know good at that stuff. So... I, and I was writing songs and stuff as well. So I just kind of did really sort of wander into journalism because it was a really interesting way to meet people, learn things, and I, as I say, get free records and concert tickets and stuff. And I wound up having a, a, a pretty interesting 10-year career. I wound up being a, an editor on staff at two publications, one of which was a Rolling Stone subsidiary called Record. And I was the only person who was on the masthead of that magazine from for every single issue from 81 to 86. And I rose up from being their musical instruments tech guy to being a senior editor. And I got to interview Neil Young and Ozzy Osbourne and, you know, Warren Zevon and Ted Templeman. And, you know, I, I, I really had a, a, an amazing 10 year career of getting to talk to a bunch of really interesting people and spending time in studios and learning how stuff worked. It was exactly what I set out to do without really aiming to. I mean, I didn't say, all right, I'm going to spend 10 years as a journalist and learn everything there is to do and then go back to being a musician. I just fucking did it. <laughs> and, and it just kept, the gigs kept coming. And, and one I, I, that became my life. And it just, I'm again, I've just followed my nose through all this stuff. I really consider myself a child of the Grateful Dead and that my life is an improvised life that I just did what made sense in the moment and, you know, kept, kept, um, uh, uh, maintain a high standard of quality for my own work and stuff. And so I just kept getting better at what I was doing and stay staying interested in it and being able to deliver interesting work. Tell me about BAM magazine. Seems like it, it's come up a few times on our show and it seems like it, you know, had a huge impact on the San Francisco Bay Area scene. It was big in its time. And I, uh, not ironically, uh, coincidentally, just one of the people that I saw on Sunday at this show that I played in Fall River was Richard McCaffrey, who was the uh, chief photographer for BAM for several of the years that I was there. A wonderful guy. And in fact, he used to used to live up the hill from where I live now. So Richard went back to his native Rhode Island and that's when he came to the gig. It was really nice to see him. For, I haven't seen him in more than 25 years. Um, BAM was just starting when I was just starting. And it was a, a, a brilliant model that den invented by a gentleman named Dennis Erickson. And I could put you in touch with him. He's very easy to find. A lovely guy. Mm -hmm. He had this idea of an ad-supported giveaway magazine with quality journalism in it. And at the time, in this, we're talking about 1976, and there was the Bay Area music scene was just immense. It was huge. There was stuff going on at every level, at every latitude of the Bay Area. So Dennis um, cashed in on that. Dennis Capital at what uh, served this market brilliantly. He started. A free magazine, I think it was a bi-weekly, 
and was reviewing records and doing interviews and selling ads to the music stores and eventually to the labels and stuff. So I showed up there. I had a brief sojourn at another magazine. Another guy was trying to do a similar thing. I think basically he was just trying to he tried to rip off a BAM's idea and published an issue and a half. And before, and I did some writing for that guy because I didn't know anybody at BAM. I was the guy, this other guy asked me to do it because a friend, mutual friend put us in touch. But that didn't last. And when it fell over, I took the stuff that I had written for that magazine and brought it to BAM and introduced myself. And they said, welcome aboard. So the first thing I did for BAM was an article about a, a Russian rock and roll band. A couple of immigrants from the USSR had come to California and started a band uh, singing in Russian and stuff. That was kind of a fun thing. That began my career at BAM. And I uh, was, again, I was writing about technical stuff because I was a musician and I, under, I, I could talk about, you know, musical instruments and effects boxes and things like that. I was learning those things. So I was a, a music journalist who could talk to musicians and talk about musicians and stuff. So I just kept getting gigs, writing reviews and doing stories. And they put me in charge of things like when the Porta studio came out, when Tascam introduced the Porta studio, which was a pretty revolutionary thing a a track recorder on a cassette deck. You could get for a few hundred bucks and little guys like me thought, Oh my God, I can multi-track my vocals now. Yay. So they gave me one. And I spent several months writing articles about what you could do with it and stuff. And I did things like that. And I wound up along the way acquiring a lot of gear at discount prices because of that. I was pursuing my own interests and using my job as a journalist to do it. And I was just, I, I have... It's so weird to look back on it because I, it, I, it, none of it, again, it was in an improvised life. It was just one opportunity appeared after another, and I was competent enough at what I did that I kept getting the gigs. And one thing led to another. Being at BAM, I interviewed. I, I went with um, uh, BAM sent me to interview Bob Weir in L.A. in 1977 when he was working on Heaven Help the Fool. And then I interviewed Robert Hunter for a major feature uh, in November of 77 and and on and on. And by 81, Blair Jackson and I went to Jerry's and did a two-part interview with him. Wow. That wound up on the cover of BAM. But I also interviewed Neil Young, you know, along the way and the Doobie Brothers and, and uh, record producers and engineers. And I got friendly with Lindsey Buckingham for a while and stuff like that. So it was, and, and it was a magazine. They had a lot of different, wonderful writers. I met a lot of great writers there. Guys like Chris Willman, who's now the head guy down at Variety. Chris Willman was on a, one of our writers for a while. And uh, Bear, I think Michael Gilmore did some freelancing for us and stuff. And and uh, Howie Klein, who went on to become the president of Reprise Records. Uh, four, one, uh, uh, yeah, Reprise Records. Yep. 415. Yep. Howie was a member of our uh, our scene, too. Yeah. Oh, it was just kind of great to be friendly with all these people and to get to do all this great stuff. And that led me to other writing gigs. I went to uh, through a colleague at Mix Magazine, which was my other principal employer. Um, I which that was an industry magazine that was Mix, the recording industry magazine, which started out as a subsidiary of BAM. So that's how I knew them. And I went to work for Mix. 
as a music editor at the same time I started working for this other magazine, Record, which was a national magazine published by Rolling Stone. So I just wound up getting even cooler gigs interviewing like, yeah, that was at the level. And in that era, when record companies would fly guys like me across the country, you know, put us up in hotel rooms and get us high so we could go interview their guys for cover stories. So I flew to Detroit to interview uh, Joe Walsh and to Miami to interview Rod Stewart. And I rode in the fucking limo with Rod Stewart's band to the gig at the Sportatorium and stuff. And it was a really, it was fucking amazing now that I think back on it. Yeah, <laughs> those days are long gone, I would say. Yeah, I know. Yep, now, yeah. now, everything that I've ever done in my life has become less lucrative over these years. Mm -hmm. yeah. Writing, you know, playing gigs, making records, all the things that I love to do. Are, yeah. Are, are... <laughs> yeah. Um, there are literally, well, I was going to say dozens, but probably hundreds of books on The Grateful Dead. Uh, not the case when you and Peter Simon co-wrote Playing in the Band, an oral and visual portrait of The Grateful Dead. Well, I when in the when I became a deadhead, there was one book on the subject. It was the Dead Book by Hank Harrison, mm -hmm. and there wasn't another one for ten years. We the, the BAM Nexus kind of brought the first couple of books out. Uh, Paul Grushkin was part of our scene. He he ran the Bay Area Music Archive, and he and his uh, his two collaborators published the official book of the Deadheads. In, uh, I think, 84. That was one of the first cool books that came out about the dead. Blair Jackson published a, 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 his first biography of the dead. It was called The Music Never Stopped in 83. And we're sitting there thinking, if we think this music is so damned important, we should start writing the books. And so we did. And one of my amazing strokes of good fortune in my life was... Going to, to Jamaica in 1982 on a press junket to cover the Jamaica World Music Festival. This was an amazing, like, three-day festival with Bob, uh, not Bob Marley, but uh, Jimmy Cliff and Gladys Knight and the Pips and the Beach Boys and the Grateful Dead and Joe Jackson. It was just an amazing lineup. And they brought a bunch of journalists down there and put us up in hotels. And we got, you know, had the run of the place and... and um, covered this festival because it was done produced by a Denver promoter, Barry Fay, and he wanted all the U.S. press to come down, write about it for our local publications so that he could sell tickets nationally to this next year of it or whatever. Right. And so, and I don't think a second year ever happened, but we sure had a great time covering <laughs> it. And while I was there, Peter Simon was there with his editor, Bob Miller, and they were just getting started on, they were going to do a book about the Grateful Dead. And I met them because they put, all of the journalists were put up at this country club on a hillside. It was a fabulous thing. So I had plenty of time to schmooze with those guys and offer up my, my services. You know, I've got photos you might be interested in, blah, blah, blah. And what I didn't know at the time was that they met with Phil Lesh while they were in Jamaica and Phil advise them to hire me to write the text for 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 peter's book mm. and they approached me about it a few months later and you can imagine what my answer was <laughs> so that again another fucking accident that led you know i mean just i didn't i didn't force that to happen right. i didn't know that was possible that it could happen it just happened and i stepped through that door when it opened up and when the book came out 
KFOG had started doing a weekly Grateful Dead show as uh, on this, they're sort of the leading rock and roll station in the area, right? And they did, they had a reggae show and a new age music show and a jazz show and a Grateful Dead show. And the Dead show was being hosted by a, a wonderful but overworked DJ named M. Dung. He had his own specialty show and he was the morning drive guy. And they were expecting him to put Grateful Dead on the air every week. So when I showed up, there were two or three guys like me, a collector named Richard Raffel and maybe another guy that were giving him tapes and stuff. But I showed up there in February of 1985 to promote my book. And I produced a little documentary about the song Greatest Story Ever Told. And I played some rare tapes and stuff. And I had a great time doing it. And they invited me to help some more because, as I say, M. Dung was overworked with all of his other gigs and stuff. And within a few months, they had asked me to take charge of the show mm. because I had a facility for it. I had some skills about producing cutting tape and stuff. And I also was a guy who just published a book about the subject. So I did that because it was fun. And this is pre-Dick's Picks and this was, this before not, all that stuff was coming out. Yeah, I started doing this stuff in 85. Later that year, Dick became the uh, archivist. Mm -hmm. And but and for years, we thought, as the radio stuff settled in, I mean, by by the end of 85, I was the regular, regularly hosting the Deadhead Hour. And Dick was working in the vault and we were hanging out. We'd go, we'd wait till the band went on the road and then we'd go hang out in the vault all day and make tapes and smoke dope and shit. And so we sort of encouraged each other in our domains in that world. And the, the stage, other stations started calling and asking if they could carry the KFOG deadhead hour. And I wound up distributing, <laughs> distributing the show to other stations. And again, sir, I did not plan that. I did not propose that. I did not connive to do that. It happened. The opportunity presented itself. I was delighted to have the opportunity. John McIntyre, one of the managers of the dead, uh, very, very kindly presented me to the band. And they said, yes, do it. And Phil Lesh personally said to me, we trust you. We know you're a musician and you know what's going on. We trust you to put the music on. You don't have to. You know, you don't have to ask permission to play specific things. So they sent me loose to curate Grateful Dead music on the radio. Yes, several years before any of this stuff was being released. I kept saying that by like 1989, 1990, I was saying, look, at the end of the show, I should be able to say, and if you enjoyed that music, you can send $20 to this. You know, they weren't ready to do it. Right. But you but, knew, you saw there was a, obviously an audience for it that wanted it. The idea did begin to take hold, and in, in classic Grateful Dead fashion, somebody else picked it up mm -hmm. and ran with it. But, but it was all exactly what was supposed to happen happened. Dick and Gary Lambert and I proposed it as the thing that the three of us would do together, but because of Grateful Dead politics, they didn't want us doing that. So it just became Dick's thing, which he did with John Cutler, which was, again, that's exactly what was supposed to happen. I... You know, I didn't need to work there. And Gary wound up finding his path into that world in a whole nother way. And Dick wound up the, the namesake and the producer of the series. And so everybody found his niche in this little firmament and it worked out great. <laughs> okay. At some point you had another show on KPFA, I believe, Dead to the World. I, I have to ask if you ever had any interesting encounters with our friends in Negative Land, Don Joyce. I I did. I did. Um, I, 
I was invited because I was hosting the KFOG Deadhead Hour. Somebody called and asked me if I wanted to help KPFA with station with which I was familiar but wasn't really a part of uh, with broadcasting the uh, Grateful Dead shows from the Greek theater, which is up the hill from the radio station. Right. And I said, yes, be glad to. So I came joined the broadcast team at KPFA. And I think we did three shows from the Greek that weekend. And that began a tradition of broadcasting because these are Rex Foundation benefits. They were broad and because Dan Healy, the Grateful Dead sound man, was big into radio. So he always loved to do stuff that involves, you know, broadcasting live was right up his alley. So broadcasting live from right up the hill was just, you know, irresistible. So for several years running, we would broadcast the Greek theater shows live on KPFA and do programming in between sets. We do interviews and stuff in between. And once in 86, I think it was, while the dead thing was, or just before the dead thing was happening, I went to San Francisco to interview David Byrne. He was working on his movie, True Stories, yep. at Russian Hill Recording with us, the film sound designer, Leslie Schatz. And I was sent to do a story with Leslie Schatz about this movie. And so I interviewed David Byrne and Leslie Schatz, and, and I invited David Byrne to come see The Grateful Dead at the Greek. And he said, yes. <laughs> So he came to one of the shows with his producer Karen Murphy, and we got the we I brought him out to the soundboard, and they sat on the uh, you know at the soundboard watching the Grateful Dead show, and you know and then after the show I brought him backstage and sat him down at the table across from Bob Weir and interviewed him live on KPFA, and it was just <laughs> totally fun and completely bizarre, and I said I and I was working on a book about Talking Heads at the time, so. Mm. Or no, I had just it, I had already published it. That's right. But I had this. I remember. I remember that in one of the books that I sourced my stuff from, somebody had called Talking Heads the Grateful Dead of the '80s, and I said, I asked Bob Weir what he thought of that. And Bob, said, <laughs> God help him. <laughs> Your question about Negative Land. I I I went be, because I had a show on the evenings in KPFA. I was in and out of the station from time to time. And and sometimes I'd go in there when they were doing their thing or I'd be on I'd be hanging out with the person doing the 10 to midnight show when all those guys came in and started tearing the studio apart because they completely reinvented the studio. They took all the two track machines and lined them up a different way so they could send tape from one, you know, the record head of one machine to the playback head of another one 10 feet away and shit like that. And they brought their cart machines in and all that stuff. So I watched them work a few times. And at one point, Don Joyce and I collaborated on a show that we called Illegal Art Forms. It was on I, for one of the daytime omnibus programs that they used to have in the heyday of KPFA back in the 90s. Don and I were invited to do a thing on, you know, on the the kind of stuff that Negative Land always did that what's the the stuff that you can do on the radio but you can't press onto a disc and right. sell, right? The whole. <laughs> so I, and and we compared notes and put on a bunch of stuff and it was it was interesting. I was in over my head. I was, you know, I mean, Don Joyce knew this shit, and yeah. I was I was kind of a, a novice. I was a few years into it, but I had been I'm doing my own digital audio art. I was doing, and I was a big fan of John Oswald by then, thanks to Henry Kaiser. So, and I was doing my own montages. One of the first things I started doing when I got into radio was cutting tape. You take 
a syllable from one song and a word from another and a line from another and stitch them together and to tell a different story, right? Appropriative art. So I was doing that kind of stuff and I was interested in doing that kind of stuff. So they threw me and Don together, but I have a feeling that we can't ask him now, of course, but I have a feeling that Don kind of felt like, you know, he was, a, it was, it was kind of him to let me do it with him, but Don's the one that knew that shit. Okay, you mentioned Henry Kaiser. How did you meet Henry? And you referenced the Mason's Children recording to me when you and I were were setting this up. That that was your, I think you record, you called it your professional recording debut. That is correct. Um, Henry contacted me. I mean, I knew who he was, but I don't think I had ever met him before. And you know, we were sort of connected to overlapping scenes and various things. Henry contacted me in 1988 and invited me to play on a record he was making. He wanted, wanted to do some Grateful Dead songs in uh, uh, on this record. And uh, I, of course, was delighted to have this opportunity. And we wound up recording Mason's Children. And I was both the lead singer and the lead guitarist on it, oddly enough. Henry, Henry put together the arrangement and put together the band, and I was thrilled to be part of it. And then he went and recorded other, you know, he recorded this beautiful long Dark Star with Hank Roberts and some other people that wound up, that came out also on that record, which was Those Who Know History Are Doomed to Repeat It. And through that, I became friends with Henry and began an occasional collaboration with him that continues to this day, although there hasn't been an instance of it in a while. But Henry also hit me to the fact that SST you know, that Greg Ginn and Henry Rollins were deadheads and that they were totally into putting this record out. That was kind of a really interesting revelation, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So the the version of Mason's Children that has Tom Constantin on it. First of all, I forgot to tell you, David, I we also chatted with, with Tom for this. Good. It's going to be in the same episode. Wonderful. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could do me the favor and tell our listeners a little bit about Tom Constantin. Okay. Well, the first version that we did, I don't think had TC on it. Henry went and did a, an enhanced version of it. We added some stuff to the beginning, I think, and then had, and that's where TC came in. And that version came out on a different record later. I can't remember the sequence of these things, but um, uh, I later also got to record a few other songs, more, more conventional sounding songs after Jerry died. And that wound up on a thing called Blue. Eternity Blue. Eternity Blue, thank yeah. you. Um, Tom Constantin, who I, I met in the, in, he sort of re-emerged into the Grateful Dead subculture in the late 80s when he came around and started playing shows, doing solo piano stuff. So I met him and in, interviewed him for my radio shows and, and um, I found him a fascinating guy. You're asking me to, to give some background on who he was? Yeah. It? yeah. Okay. Well, Tom, Tom Phil Lesh, in his autobiography and in the interview that I published with him, talks tells this wonderful story of uh, uh, being in the music department at the University of California at Berkeley in the very early 60s as a teenager or whatever, and, and standing in line to audition for something or whatever it was and meeting this guy who shared his, you know, particular narrow uh interests in completely outside shit you know and so they just bonded immediately and became uh roommates and collaborators and friends you know 
and 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 because they were into that stuff that i mean you know dropping i could i could drop names that i don't really understand but they knew you know they they and they studied together and they played together and they traveled together and um created together and tc was a keyboardist and at one point was invited to join the grateful dead he was in the air force mm-hmm. so he couldn't do it right away but he came and played on the uh, anthem of the sun sessions very famously doing the prepared piano stuff in at in, in the middle of uh, that's it for the other one the um the the sort of swirling cacophony that comes out of no he had to die um goes off and included in it is a a recorded piece a, a taped piece that tc did for you know in his studies in in his academic life and they put that piece wholesale onto the multi-track tape of this space jam thing in the middle of and he also added other things. He did this prepared piano stuff. And the, Bob Weir tells the story most famously in my book, uh, Playing in the Band. Uh, they they were working with a producer um, named uh, uh, Dave Hassinger, who had produced their first record and was trying to produce their second record. But they were just going way off into this weird shit because Phil Lesh and Tom Constanton were there and they wanted to do their tape music center kind of stuff. And their, you know, their barrio and their their. Uh, French, uh, you know, Stockhausen, all they wanted right, to right. Their, all their weird stuff in the middle of a Grateful Dead record with this folk rock musician named Jerry Garcia, right? So, so Dave Hassinger was in the middle of this chaotic thing where all these guys are doing all this music on top of each other, and in the middle of it all, he's sitting in the control room, and Tom Constantin takes a kid's toy top and spins it up, and he drops it onto the soundboard of the piano, and it goes. And you can hear it on the album. It's this great moment. But Bobby tells the story that Dave Hassinger is sitting in the control room, having no idea that was coming, jumps 10 feet out of his seat when it happens. Right. So it's just TC. He contributed a lot of weirdness to a record that had a lot of great weirdness. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He toured with the Grateful Dead until January of 1970. He got out of the Air Force. I think it was in November of 68, maybe. I think so. Yeah. And shows up at a at a, a gig out in Ohio. Yep. That's what he told me. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's one of the few shows in Grateful Dead history for which no recording is known to exist. Mm. TC's first gig, day, gig with the dead is not documented. But he lasted until New Orleans 1970. And various versions of that story had to do with him not being able to hear himself very well. Yeah. Uh, standing next to the nine, you know, Fender guitar uh, amplifiers of Jerry Garcia. But... There was one point, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know. It's musical stuff. We can't really under, we can't really know what was going on. I, the Grateful Dead had almost not sufficient. Uh, the, the Grateful Dead's musical evolution almost took place in spite of them, or it took place. It led them. You know, stuff was going on that they kind of couldn't have stopped. And by by 1970, the Grateful Dead was heading away from the deeply weird. I mean, they were they kept it, 
They always kept it. They, I mean, remember, they played abstract music to 90,000 people at JFK Stadium and stuff. But they, they were settling down into this other thing. They were beginning this songwriting binge of country rock and stuff that John Wesley Harding and the band had had set this nice little tone of let's do this Americana thing, shall we? Yep. And Hunter and Garcia just jump right the fuck into it. And that was beginning to happen. And also, Guido Marcus once said to me, he thought that Altamont kind of scared everybody a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, the sort of the outer limits of weirdness and excess and un- the undisciplined, social undisciplined of that might have. And, and I've never really had a chance to ask that question of Grateful Dead members, whether they felt that. But it was suggested by Guido Marcus, who was around and paying attention at that time, that some of the sort of that moment just kind of made everybody go, whoa, maybe we should rein this in a little. But all these factors, and starting in December of 1969, the Grateful Dead were starting to do acoustic sets. And so Tom Constantin's participation, I I, I think they just kind of, they were easing away from him. And depending on who you ask, you know, the practical matters, you know, some would complain about it. Of somebody once said, you know, he could jam, but he couldn't swing, whatever, you know. It, the, he left the band in January of 1970 and, and went off into his own stuff. He published a wonderful autobiography called Between Rock and Hard Places somewhere, also, I think, right around the end of the 80s, and started going out and playing gigs on the solo piano and things like that. And that's when I met him. Okay, you mentioned, yeah, that he, he kind of started a musical career in this, I'm not sure how you how you phrased it, but, you know, this wider Grateful Dead community. Yeah. Tell me about Relics Records. It seems to me that it was, in a way, like a farm team for for the Grateful Dead. It, lots of connections to various musicians that played with the Grateful Dead or um, were Dead-esque in their music, if I can well, put it that that's, way. That's what Relics was pursuing. They were Relics was a deadhead publication. It was started by by Jerry Moore and Les Capel as a tape trading fanzine. Ah. And the first name of it was Dead Relics when it was mimeographed. It was called Dead Relics. And its fundamental purpose was to facilitate tape trading. And it became more and more involved in actual journalism. And they started bringing writers, you know, Tony became the editor and and. Guys like Jeff Tamarkin came along who were real journalists and stuff and really made it into a proper magazine. I did some writing for it. A lot of us did. Blair Jackson wrote for Relics and stuff. Um, But it, it, so, and in fact, there was a moment in 1982 when I went, when I interviewed Ozzy Osbourne in January of 1982, it was for the cover of Relics magazine. (laughs) What's the tie in there? Well, Relics was trying to expand its reach and not be just a Grateful Dead fanzine because they had become by then it was, uh, uh, you know, it it had gone from being, you know, a broadsheet, I think it was at first or a quarterfold or something like that, or or it might have just been the stapled or whatever, but it became a proper saddle stitched magazine with a slick cover somewhere in there. And so... Uh, they they wanted to diversify and start covering other kinds of music and become a more general interest music magazine, probably for the sake of their business, because at that point, the Grateful Dead wasn't the multi-billion dollar a year industry that it is. It became over the years. Right. So they and they started a record company 
to promote the kind of music that they loved. I think they 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 were marketing it under what they the the name they called it Bay Rock for several years, I think. And they would hire people that were Grateful Dead ish musicians, people who liked to play that kind of music. And then eventually started, you know, they signed Robert Hunter himself. And right. they had and they and they had uh, Kingfish and you know people that were that were dead adjacent but weren't members of the Grateful Dead didn't have the Grateful Dead's clout in the business didn't have uh, you know the, the, it was a label that attracted those kind of people that were dead uh, friendly dead dead centric but not um, connected to the dead because the you know the Grateful Dead itself was a much more significant and um, you know. It was a distinct and, and real entity of its own that kind of wasn't interested in this other stuff. So this other thing sprang up. Les and Tony put together this label to promote all of these other musicians and gave a lot of work and put out a lot of really cool stuff. David Nelson did a lot of stuff for Relics as well, you know, because they were fostering all of all of us dead adjacent musicians uh, needed a place to work. And so Relics did that really nicely for many years. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I asked Tom this question about his solo career, and I'll ask you the same question. Uh, if someone has never heard a David Gans recording, where would you? What's a good place to start? Where would you point them? I would point them to my online store, Perfectible.net, and I would uh, ask them to check out a record called "Drop the Bone," my most recent studio album. It has, uh, a, it's mostly original music, but it's got Box of Rain and a couple of other covers on it. Um, and there's another, if you want to just hear what I do with Grateful Dead music, there's another record that I made called, uh, called This Is, excuse me, It's a Hand Me Down. It came out, it, 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 I put it out in conjunction with the book, This Is All the Dream We Dreamed. And it was, I used the same graphic designer who did the book cover. And it's a collection of me doing Grateful Dead songs in my soul, what I call solo electric style. Writing songs since 1969, and I've written dozens of songs, and I've published dozens of albums of largely original material. Because I consider myself a direct descendant of the Grateful Dead, and I'm doing exactly their formula. I'm combining original music, interpretations of other people's music, and improvisation into a unique kind of sound. It's the, the the specifics of it, you know, the lexicon that they worked from is different because I grew up in a different era and they didn't, you know, and I adapted a lot of their songs the same way they adopted a lot of Chuck Berry, Beatles and Bob Dylan songs, right? We folded a bunch of stuff into our own kind of thing. So I my records... Uh, have a lot of Grateful Dead influence in them, but they sound like me because it's my narrative. My own songwriting voice has been developing for more than 50 years. Mm -hmm. Tell me about you. Well, you were telling me before we recorded about um, you're coming up to my neck of the woods. So I'm assuming you're you're going on tour with Dead Ends Live. What's that? It's not a tour. Oh, okay. Uh, it's a fly it's it's a festival. There's a, a, a fellow named Peter North in Edmonton who's been doing a radio show up there called Dead Ends mm. for decades. I don't I, I think it ended recently. I'm not sure what the story is, the whole history of that. But he wanted to put on a festival of music that salutes the Grateful Dead. Not, you know, not not like just a festival of Grateful Dead covers, but influences people influenced by the Grateful Dead. and People who can talk about what the Grateful Dead means and stuff. 
So last March, they threw the first of these called Dead Ends Live, and they brought Joe Craven and me and Mark Hummel and Gary Vogensen up from the Bay Area. And Mark is a very, very well-known blues harmonica player. Gary Vogensen, I don't know as well. Gary was part of the New Riders of Purple Sage for a while, some, some years back. And Joe Craven, amazing musician, lovely guy, was part of the Garcia Grisman Quartet. He played violin and mandolin and percussion and stuff with those guys and was also in the David Grisman Quintet for years. Joe, a couple years ago, and Joe lives out in the Sacramento Valley, about 100 miles east of here. And he put out a record a few years ago called uh, Joe Craven and the Sometimers put out a record called Garcia Songbook. And what it was was a collection of Jerry's original songs and songs that we'd heard from Jerry, like Shady Grove and uh, Russian Lullaby and things like that. But it was with this amazing band that he's got out there and they just completely reinvented all the songs. They'd, they'd either do like genre flipping things like put, put one with kind of a spaghetti Western guitar tone on it or an Afro beat thing under crazy fingers and things like that. But they turned, took, took all these amazing songs and made them amazing in a different way by interpreting them in, in different styles. And I love the record and I've played every song on it on both of my radio shows many times over the years and I've loved Joe. I've jammed with him at festivals over the years. And and they brought us together in Edmonton last March. And we got to just play a show together in a beautiful church in front of a bunch of really, really happy people just doing dead-related stuff together. And it was just, in fact, we didn't even limit it to dead stuff. It seems to me we did Dixie Chicken up there and stuff like mm. that. But it... I, we just hit it off immediately. I mean, he's an amazing musician and I'm at the top of my game because I've been playing a live set at home every day since April of 2020. So I'm just raring to go. And Joe and I just knocked it out of the park that day. And we've started collaborating. We played a bunch of gigs together since. And we played with the McDades. Do you know the McDades? Sounds familiar. Uh, interesting folk band from Canada. Doing Celtic stuff and all. And they played a bunch of dead songs with us. And Harry Manx was there. He did a set of his own music that was quite wonderful. And there's a local band of doing African instruments, the Embira band, that play Grateful Dead music and stuff. And we had a good time doing it, and it was a big success. So they're doing it again this year, and they're bringing Joe and me back again to do it in mid-March. So it's a one-time festival in Edmonton. But I'm hoping they talked about last year about, about maybe doing it in a few places like doing it in Calgary and Vancouver as well. Maybe one day if it does well this year, maybe next year it'll get bigger. But yeah. it, uh, it's a festival of appreciation of the Grateful Dead. And oh, and John Kavlisic is coming up, who's like one of the leading uh, Jerry Garcia interpreter guys. He tours with Melvin Seals now. He was one of the founders of Dark Star Orchestra. So in that Grateful Dead cover band world, John Kay is one of the big you know, most um, uh, uh, widely regarded, highly regarded players. And he's coming up too. I'm looking forward to playing with him because we play together off and on also over the years. Hmm. I know some of your books are still in print. I don't, some are not, doesn't look like, for example, your talking heads book is, is not in print. Uh, Never. Where can people find the books that are in print on your website? Yes, of the two, the the two that I control uh, that are still in print are Conversations with the Dead, 
And this is all a dream we dreamed, an oral history of the Grateful Dead, which I wrote in collaboration with Blair Jackson. Uh, and I have an online store called perfectible.net. And, and I sell signed copies of those books because Blair conveniently lives a couple hundred feet away on the next block. So when we sell a book, I bring it down to his house and he signs it. So you can, when you get an autographed book from us, it's autographed by both of us. Hmm. And I also sell uh, all of my records are available online. And I, I made a lot, of, a lot of different records with a lot of wonderful musicians. And I do urge people to poke around and check things out. I also am on Bandcamp and SoundCloud and YouTube. All my albums, CD Baby puts all my albums up on YouTube. So if you want to browse all my shit for free, look me up on YouTube and you can see most of my albums there. Okay. You mentioned your live broadcast. This is daily. Yes. On your Facebook page? Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and an online uh, concert platform called streamstock.tv. I use Restream so I can stream to four platforms at the same time. In April of 2020, after the pandemic started and all my gigs got canceled, I was sitting there trying to figure out what the fuck. And everybody started doing stuff online. And I was looking for, well, maybe if I do it Thursday at 7 p.m. or something. And I went, nah, if I, I thought, if I wait till nobody's doing anything, I'll never do anything. And if I try and make like one special thing, I'll be disappointed because nine people will show up for it. So I decided I'm just going to play every day and see what happens. And I started playing. I mean, I, you know, I have a bit of a following. I got a mailing list of a few thousand people and you know, 10,000 likes on my Facebook page, whatever. So I have some reach. And plus, I have two radio shows I can use to hype my shit. So I just started playing every day at 4 o'clock. And I first I did it by, I set up my PA system at home so it sounds like me playing into a room rather than plugged into a soundboard. And I just pointed my iPad at it. And it worked. I would just play for an hour every day and I started attracting a crowd. A few of my... A few of my my regular fans, you know, that would come to my gigs and stuff sort of became regular viewers. And there's a couple dozen people that watch my set every day. And we're coming up on three years of it. I've I've played more than 900 shows. Wow. One every afternoon. I've taken time off. I went went on vacation for a few days. I went last year when I went to Hawaii. um, I actually did a couple of live sets from Hawaii, but I took most of the days off. But I've played with a few exceptions every day, and it's just been great. I've I made some money doing it. It it impelled me to open the online store, which I'd never gotten around to doing, because I I don't have a merch table if I'm not playing gigs. So now my merch table is online. So it actually helped me get my whole thing together to do it remotely and when I'm not going out and playing gigs. And the truth is, man, I'm not, I'm not, I'm going out and playing gigs from time to time, but I don't really plan to go back out on tour and do like two week tours of clubs and stuff. Cause I've really gotten good at being home. My (laughs) wife and I really get along great. And I have, I'm having such a good time since I started doing this. I've played 500 different songs. I played old things from when I was a kid I've played dozens of songs that I wrote myself. I've played Grateful Dead songs that I had never tried to play before. I've worked out solo looping arrangements of Beatles songs. So 
I, I I rotate them. I don't play the same thing. But, you know, I may, you know, I try and keep it so I don't play anything more often than every five days. But I'm always looking and reviewing what I've played, and I, I get requests every day too. Mm-hmm. So I'm being challenged. And just to give you another example, um, couple last week, my brain radio started playing this song that I remembered from listening on the transistor radio when I was a kid. And it was, I think I thought it was this Australian guy. He goes, I remember you. You're the one who made my dreams come true. And I don't know why it popped up in my memory. And I remembered the song so well. It just kind of was like, wow, it became one of those earworms that was driving me nuts. So I looked it up on YouTube. And I was amazed at how clearly I remembered it and how pro, you know, how well it was in, in, already in my memory. So I sat down with my guitar, worked out the chords, and played it live on my show that day. It's that kind of stuff. And I'll play it again. Well, I, 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 I just, as you've been talking here, I kind of had what I consider to be a brilliant idea. So uh, another musician who um, has been doing what you're describing right now is Henry Kaiser. He, yeah, has a, he has a weekly show. And yeah. so I, I'm thinking, well, I, you know, I could send you Henry's email address if you, if you haven't been in touch for a while and, and don't have it. And you could go on his show and do a, do a version I, of Mason's Children. We're way ahead of you. <laughs> I, I, right after uh, Rick Turner died last April, the, the, my, our, Henry's and my mutual friend and the maker of my amazing guitar, Rick Turner, passed away quite unexpectedly last April. And one of the one of the things um, a, a week or two afterwards, Henry said, I, I want you to send me one of your jams that I can improvise on. Uh, in, in on, I want you to do a, a, an improvisation in honor of Rick that I can then overdub. Right. And I said, well, Henry, I, I have a perfect thing for you. I had done a, uh, a, one of my sets. I had opened with an improvisation and segued right into Mason's Children, which I have a nice solo arrangement of. So Henry said, that's perfect. Send it down. And I sent him the high quality audio and the video and Henry improvised along with it and stood in front of a screen with, you know, I somehow mixed him improvising into the video of me playing it. Right. This was several months ago on his show. So we've already done it. Exactly. Oh, you've already done it. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll look so it up. <laughs> Henry, which one it is. I, I, I don't think I remember which uh, show it was in, but. Uh, yeah, Henry and I are in fairly regular contact. We haven't played on stage together. Mostly these days, if we see each other, it's at a tribute concert or of an, one one kind or another. I have, I used to organize Jerry Garcia tribute concerts as fundraisers at one or another venue, and Henry's always a reliable guy for those because he'll come in and just kick fucking ass on a song or two, you know. <laughs> and he's, he's 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 good box office. He's great. He's a great musician, a wonderful human being to deal with, you know. Mm-hmm. So I always, if I'm doing a, a a group salute thing, Henry is always on my call list. Awesome. David, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. I, I've enjoyed it. I hope I didn't overload you. I've sort of got into a very loquacious mood here. So <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> thanks all right, a th- lot. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Awesome, man. What did I tell you? 
mind blown <laughs> repeatedly by David. So cool. So cool to hear from him. And, you know, like, where else are you going to get any details about this three-inch CD? I yeah. don't know. David's just living the dream, Ryan. Like, he carved out a career writing about and talking about music. You know? I know. Yeah. Uh, I, unfortunately, he made the point, I think, correctly that I'm not sure you could do what he did anymore or certainly not as successfully, but man, one can dream. Hey. Yeah. I like how he, he says something along the, the, the lines of just, I just did what made sense in the moment and maintained a high standard of quality of work. That's just inspiring to me. I like, I really like that. Yeah. Um, he mentions relics records. Um, you know who released, uh, an album on relics? Oh, tell me. Uh, the dead connected San Francisco band Dinosaurs, the band that forced the ah. SST Dinosaur to, to <laughs> add the junior to their name, which apparently the the band Dinosaurs thought was amazing that they added the junior, like they took it as a tribute. Um, he, he mentions Henry's weekly solo. Um, I went down a total rabbit hole clicking on various episodes trying to find the one with David. I couldn't find it. I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but there's so much good stuff to watch, especially with all of the cool stuff Henry adds in post to his to weekly solo. <laughs> yeah. The creativity with these, uh, you know, I don't want to say old guys, but you know, the old guard. Yeah. The people who are such seasoned creative musicians and artists, it's, that is inspiring. That yeah. is inspiring. That's going to keep me going for another 150 episodes of this show. Yeah. All right, well, uh, let's throw to to Tom. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Tom Constantin. Tom, thanks for being on the show. It's great to be here. All right, I want to go all the way back with you. You were, I believe, born in New Jersey, but you went to high school in Las Vegas. How did you end up in Las Vegas? Well, I'll make a long story short. Uh, my stepfather, Frank Constantin, from whom I got the name, mm-hmm. Worked at the Copacabana in New York City, 10 East 60th Street, just off Lexington Avenue, Jules Podell's place. It was a place where the Rat Pack played. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he took me into work one afternoon, and I met Jimmy Durante, stuff like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, in 1953, he got an invitation to join the crew at the Fledgling Sands Hotel in Las Vegas. Hmm. And he went there, and... Uh, Prior to that, I mean, I was a New York kid, a Jersey Shore kid. I went to New York Giants and Brooklyn Dodger games. Yeah. I saw DiMaggio in uniform, Yogi Berra. <laughs> As a New York Giant fan, I saw the Yankees back when they were worth hating. <laughs> so anyway, he got this gig in Las Vegas, and we moved there in 1954. That's where I went to grade school, high school. Uh, that's where I got this accent. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't know there was a Vegas accent. Or are you talking New York? Oh uh, well, I, actually, when I go back to, I start talking normal again. <laughs> but that's another question. Uh, but no, it's uh, I've often said about Las Vegas, it's a great place to live, but I wouldn't want to visit there. <laughs> okay, um, how did you get first first get interested in playing music? And was piano your first instrument? Oh yes, it was. Uh, my parents uh, got me piano lessons when I was about seven, and I would trudge down to uh, Kinderkamack Road uh, in River Edge, New Jersey, and uh, these very beginning lessons. And uh, 
since then, I've been a piano teacher. I've taught at several institutions, and I've never had a piano student who was as bad as I was. <laughs> but what kept me going was I would practice something else. I would keep my playing. I would keep my hands on the keyboards. I would still be playing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's ultimately what saved me. Uh, I, I survived a bunch of teachers after that until finally I found a teacher, uh, Mario Finninger, when I was living in West Hollywood, and he essentially gave the car the keys of the car to me. He told me that, uh, he, he showed me, actually, that the only thing between me and anything I wanted to achieve was a finite amount of work. Right. And he specified what that work was. And since then, uh, it's like my oars met the water, and it rolled on from then. I continued with uh, piano lessons in Las Vegas, composition lessons also, uh, such that uh, Antonio Morelli, who conducted the orchestra at the big room, the Copa Room, named after the Copa Cabana in New York, see how it all sized together, uh, featured me as one of his four musicians of the future. Oh, wow. In a concert with the Las Vegas Pops Orchestra in 1961, which was sort of my debut. And uh, I mean, some of the other musicians were real. Uh, Greg Pepitone went on, got a doctorate, became a professor. Darlene Gray was for years, maybe still is, the principal violinist of the San Francisco Symphony. Mm. Paul Freed played first flute for the Boston Symphony. I mean, I was shoulder, shoulder, shoulder to shoulder with major leaguers. Wow, no kidding. When, oh, yeah. did, when did you first get interested in like avant-garde music? And how, what was kind of your gateway into that? 50s. Yeah. Uh, I, I, there was a hardbound magazine called Horizon uh, that had an article on it. And it had sheet music examples. I tried out some Stockhausen and John Cage. This would have been around 1957. And something in me snapped and said, that's for me. Mm-hmm. I heard these intricate crystalline sounds on the other side of dissonance. Uh, a New York Philharmonic broadcast concerts, which we got in Las Vegas, played some Leonard Bernstein performances of Boulez in the late 50s. And uh, I thought this was the new music. And uh, so I went uh, in 62, thanks to the good offices of Luciano Berrio, to uh, study with the, the, the very masters of it. Uh, get my feet dirty, roll up my sleeves, pick a metaphor. Yeah, this is in Germany. Yes, yeah, Darmstadt in 62 and 63. I also, after that, went to uh, Brussels to uh, work in Henri Pousseur's electronic music studio mm. on Chaussée de Vlorca in Ixel. And after that, went and spent a year in Italy with Berio. Wow. He was uh, uh, La Scala. Pico La Scala was premiering an opera of his that season. So I was this teenage urchin backstage at La Scala <laughs> many, many times. Uh, he introduced me to Nino Sanzonio, who had been the house conductor since the 40s, mm. and before that, La Fenice. Uh, I ran into his name. Uh, again, I found a, a book on music in fascist Italy, and a lot of people I met there were part of that. Right. Now, what did you have in mind at this point for yourself as a musician? Did you did you think you would end up joining a band, or was that the furthest thing from your mind? A, a rock band, no less. 
<laughs> but uh, rock music really didn't interest me at all until Bob Dylan and the Beatles. Yeah. Because up until then, it was just three, maybe four chords, and it was a social event. And I was your quintessential nerd in high school. Right. <laughs> I had a slide rule. I wore it in a holster on my belt with the the, uh, the bottom of it strapped to my leg with a thong like a gunslinger. <laughs> there was a 33 scale, log, log, decitrig, trigonometric functions, all that sort of stuff. Right. And uh, so I, I, had, I hadn't been considering that at all. In fact, the world that was open in the late 50s and early 60s in avant-garde music was so wide, I don't think any of us could have imagined where it would have led. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe John Cage had the vision. I mean, he opened the doors and windows so wide that anything could happen, including uh, you know, psychedelic music in the late 60s. Uh, I remember I once went to Bill Kreutzmann's house, and we, uh, I think, what was it, DMT, something we enjoyed. We put on KBFA radio, and they were playing John Cage's Variations too, which is an electronic collage. And uh, if you've heard uh, the Beatles' Revolution Number no. 9 yep. or Frank Zappa's Help on the Rock, they were derivative knockoffs of the original John Cage. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I was at. Yep. <laughs> you met Phil Lesh while uh, going to, to uh, school in Berkeley? Yes, I was there on a science scholarship. I'd been to a National Science Foundation Astro Space Camp in 1960 and uh, you might recall after october 4th 1957 with sputnik there was a rush in the u.s to educate people in science we were competing with the soviet union right and so i was the beneficiary of that and on a lark i went to morrison hall the music building at uc berkeley to take their entrance exam to see where i'd place and during the break i started talking with this guy about music and it turns out we agreed about almost everything, and that was Phil Lesh, and he invited me to a, a share his apartment. He, we drove down to the peninsula and visited us with his friend, Jerry Garcia. And uh, one thing led to another, and there we jolly well were. Mm-hmm. Now, Phil was kind of the avant-garde fella on that end as well, I believe. Well, it- he had been a volunteer at KPFA Radio, and he had access to tapes of all of them. Mm. I got some uh, some of them I would dearly love to get my hands on again. He had Poesie Pour Pouvoir of Pierre Boulez, which Boulez later recalled, and you probably can't get a tape of now. He had early uh, recordings of Stockhausen's Gruppen, uh, which uh, we had to wait a while before the score was released. Uh, it was so complicated, the engraver had a nervous breakdown. Wow. And uh, it, it was very edgy. Were you interested in doing stuff with tape tape loops this early on? Oh, yes. Uh, in uh, Brussels in the uh, summer of 1962 at uh, Henri Pousseur's studio, the studio Apelac. Uh, I did several tape pieces, one of which wound up on Anthem of the Sun. It just happened to fit right nicely. <laughs> Something you'd done way earlier. Uh, August 1962, yes. Yeah. What about synthesizers? Well, the studio in Brussels essentially had the components which Bob Moog assembled and put in a box and called a synthesizer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't so conveniently uh, 
a raid and a push button sense. Uh, you had to pull out the box and connect the wires, and uh, uh, it took me a while to get used to that. Uh, Husserl's uh, assistant, Leo Cooper, was very indulgent with me. Uh, mind you, I was 18 years old. Yeah. Uh, I was a <laughs> kid. I was a bright kid, but I was still a kid. <laughs> okay, so were you playing with the Grateful Dead at all before you joined the Air Force? Or was it more during? Well, they, they only started to happen during. Yeah. I'd received a draft notice in the mail uh, ordering me to report for military duty. And uh, I had this bright idea that if I enlisted in the Air Force, that they would take that as an excuse. And I lucked out. They did. Uh, two years later, they wouldn't have. Right. I would have been uh, sent Cannon to Cannon fodder. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so I, uh, it was a semi-voluntary move. Yep. And it was about the same time as the acid tests. Oh, yeah. Mind, in the meantime, I was taking trips. I, I, I made Airmen of the Month, Squadron Airmen of the Month, three times, and I was put up for Base Airmen of the Month. I was a good troop. And uh, so I got these uh, compensatory awards. And uh, I remember one three-day pass, I went to L.A. to record Anthem of the Sun. <laughs> And another one, uh, they had you put your address where you'll be, and I put my home address. I thought for a second to put 710 Ashbury, but then I thought, well, thought no. better of that one. <laughs> okay, well, getting these awards and stuff, I, did that give you the freedom to, to compose music on military mainframe computers? That, yes, that's it, wild. Tell me about that. <laughs> I was uh, allotted as a computer programmer, systems analyst, to time on the mainframe computer to sharpen my programming skills. So I devised a program to compose music, and it ultimately gave me output, which I transferred to a, a score for a string orchestra, which was performed at the university there. <laughs> and it was an interesting bit of a biofeedback, computer-related, although th this was a computer of 60 years ago. Right. Uh, we were trained on a Univac, which was the immediate cousin, or I would even see maybe nephew of uh, ENIAC, which was the first digital computer, mm -hmm. electronic yep. numerator, integrator, and calculator. Yep. And so I was there all, I was there almost with the beginning of the computers and the Grateful Dead. So, uh, <laughs> and the two ended up colliding. So by November of 68, you're, you're discharged. Did you go on the road with the Grateful Dead or was it mostly just based around the Berkeley area at that point? November 22nd, 1968. I was separated from the Air Force. I uh, turned in my uniforms, although I, I kept a couple for souvenirs. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went from being an Air Force sergeant to a, a rock and roll keyboard player. I met <laughs> at Athens, Ohio. That's where you met up with them? Yes, and I was uh, sorely embarrassed because my hair was so short. Right. <laughs> Is it fair to say you kind of, in a sense, replaced Ron, or at least took, took over that, that role in the band? That he he had previously been playing, I would uh, uh, I would turn the, uh, the the herd in a different direction. Mm -hmm. uh, Pigpen and I got along better than uh, anyone else in the band. We wound up rooming together on the road. We wound up sharing a house together in Novato. Uh, in a sense, my sitting at the keyboard liberated him to be a front man. Mm -hmm. And that's when he started doing those love light raps. Or uh, for caution, it, it, it freed him up in a way. Playing Although, harmonica a little bit more, maybe? 
Exactly so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, except whenever we played Death's Don't Have No Mercy, he always took over at the keyboard. Uh-huh. I mean, our our, uh, our relationship was 100% friendly, cordial, and supportive. Hmm. What was it about Ron that, that uh, you think made you two see, uh, see eye to eye in the band? Um, that's hard to say even now. Uh, he was... Uh, uh, we were opposites in many ways. His dad was a, a blues DJ, mm. and he was really up on that genre of, uh, I wish I could think of a better word, uh, uh, boogie woogie. He gave me a, a sheet music volume of boogie woogie music by Albert Ammons, Pine Top Smith. Uh, we related to each other that way, and many other ways. We played chess on the road. Uh, one One tour, I brought some baseball cards and we flip cards in our off time <laughs> just for fun we had many in jokes going on between us and many things uh, uh we turned each other on to he turned me on to dune oh, frank yeah. herbert for yep. instance yep and uh, there were a couple of brother science fiction things that uh, i mentioned to him mm-hmm. uh, we had a one of our ongoing in jokes i think this goes back to the british soldiers in world war one was uh, someone will say a phrase, and you will then say, as the bishop said to the actress. Okay. And it would sort of polarize the meaning of the phrase. <laughs> and we had many examples of that. We got so we would just say as, and we knew what we meant. Right. The era of that you were in the band is kind of an interesting era. Like you mentioned, Ron's into the, the boogie-woogie. I feel like, you know, Jerry's into bluegrass or, or uh, roots music or what we call roots music now. And, and, and here's Appalachian. Yeah. Here, here's you bringing in, you know, the avant-garde and it kind of, I, do you think it's fair to say the band hadn't really developed its, you know, its, its sound at that point? We were all, uh, I mean, we were, we were, we were all kids. We were in our twenties. Yeah. Still exploring. We, we were still assembling our personages, and all that came later. Uh, as you alluded to, I think when Jerry Garcia connected uh, Appalachian folk music with the blues, uh, that was the magic spark that powered him for a long while from then on. And a big, a big band, of course, brought his own ethos to that. It's been said that the band was two different bands when Jerry was fronting it or when Big Ben was fronting it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, the the two studio albums and the live album that you made with the band are, you know, foundational records of the band. Um, do you feel like you get your due in the group's history? Oh, that's not for me to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's uh, uh, many people have been very, very kind. Uh, uh, then uh, there are others uh, who my name comes up and they say, who? Yeah. Uh, I've... Uh, I've been a, a, a clue on a crossword puzzle in a Deadhead magazine. Uh, I've been a trivia answer. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, the Jerry, Phil, Bob Weir, Big Pen, uh, they're, the, they're the ones that posterity will remember. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, occasional dollops of sunlight have fallen in my lap, and I'm grateful for that. Well, you did get included in the Hall of Fame induction, and that's not something that every ex-band member of every band can say, for sure. So that's an acknowledgement of the contribution, I would say. A, a very big one. The, the band has been very inclusive that way, and I've met some uh, other bands on tour who uh, 
have their own family uh, dysfunctions to deal with. <laughs> uh, I, I was on a, a dinosaurs tour of Europe in 2005, and because of the schedule, I wound up spending a lot of my time hanging out with Iron Butterfly. Mm -hmm. We've done a couple of shows together with back in the day. Yep. And uh, we got along wonderfully well. Yeah. Uh, so it's said that you, you know, you left the, the group on good terms and kind of by mutual agreement. Well, the, uh, the, the technology at the time wouldn't allow the keyboard to be amplified sufficient to compete with the guitars. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the guitar technology was advancing so much faster. Uh, you had a, a Lembic where they were hot rotting Fender guitars, you know, putting in higher quality components, uh, bring it up to higher levels, uh, more amplifiers. Uh, Owsley came in and did the sound, and uh, he had an amazing influence as well. Although at first it was very iffy. Uh, Pigpen once said that Owsley's sound system worked 100% well 50% of the time. <laughs> and sometimes we would sell it for a system that worked 50% well 100% of the time. Right. <laughs> Tell me about the band Touchstone you were in post-Grateful Dead. Immediately after The Grateful Dead, I was invited to write the music and be the music director of an off-Broadway show. Uh, Joe McCourt, a brilliant meme, he would say meme, not mime, he studied with Etienne de Cru, uh, put it together. He was the driving force behind it, and the show was entirely without words in whiteface. Mm. All the characters and the characters were from the tarot cards. Mm. And I did the music for that, and we had... Uh, four-week run in Brooklyn at the Chelsea Theater Center and then a four-week run in Manhattan at the Circle in the Square on uh, Bleecker Street in Greenwich Village. And it, it was a wonderful experience. We came tantalizingly close to that critical mass of ticket sales that would allow the, the show to keep going. Right. But, uh, show business was brutal. Uh, the, the numbers were smaller then, but the principle works the same. But it wound up turning into an artist, artist record. And the band uh, Touchstone did several gigs after that in the Bay Area. Mm. Uh, our guitarist, Paul Drusher, went on, got a degree in music, and now is a major force in the Bay Area. There's mm. Paul Drusher Ensemble. Uh, they award grants and awards and residencies. Uh, I'm uh, pleased and delighted to see how well he has done. Mm, good. Uh if I have it right, you worked in theater for a fair amount in the 70s, composing. As, uh, several different shows. Uh, it was an itinerant life. I was a musical brassero. I'd catch in with a show here and there. I did music for plays by Bertolt Brecht, Harold Pinter, um, a couple of others of that ilk whose name will come to me. Mm -hmm. Avant-garde things. Uh Actually, over the past 15 years, there was a group in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina called the Moving Poets Theater of Dance that I did about a dozen shows with. Mm. One of them, they actually gave me a speaking role oh. as part of the drama oh. with lines to memorize. It was very daunting. It was We did a version of Faust, and it was in the first act where God and the devil are discussing what to do with Faust, and I got to play God for two weeks. <laughs> uh, the responsibility was awesome. Yeah, uh, The fact that I got through it, I think, was uh, I, I felt very good about. I didn't <laughs> line. I delivered every, every which way. Yeah. And um, 
So yes, music theater, even a little bit of film. When I get the call, I answer. When and how did you meet Henry Kaiser? Oh, you know, that's a good question. Uh, sometime, I think he's, he called me up to invite me on a, a project, a recording project. And then I wound up doing some concerts with him, with his band. He put together a band with uh, Bruce Anderson, Dale Sophia, Lucas Ligeti, the son of the composer Gergi Ligeti. And we were called the Siamese Stepbrothers. Mm. And we did some edgy avant-garde uh, uh, rock and roll music. That sounds like a- Henry. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, the the album that we're, ge- we're going to be discussing uh, has you playing on a studio version of Mason's Children with Henry. Do you recall how that yeah. happened at all? I remember, yes, uh, that might have been the, the first project he called me in on. Hmm. And uh, I remember doing it originally with The Grateful Dead. We only did it live a couple of times, but I remember we were rehearsing it at uh, Alembic Studios, uh, adjacent to Hamilton Air Force Base, Marin County. Uh, Phil brought in the chord changes uh, written on a legal pad in his inimitable writing, mm-hmm. and that's all I had to go by. And uh, Henry added a couple of licks here and there, and uh, it was a, a different animal, but uh, it's always a different animal. Yeah, I, I believe that song is very is, is a very early Grateful Dead song, if I'm not mistaken. Not as far as I was concerned. It was near the end of my tenure with the band. Ah. We, have def- we have different definitions of early. Right. <laughs> okay, and you played some shows, I believe, with the Henry Kaiser Band? Oh, yes. With the, with the oh, Hillary oh, Haynes and... Hillary, yeah, the Stench Brothers. yeah. Yeah, uh, Carrie Sheldon doing vocals. Yeah, we we did a wide range of material. We did a band song called "King Harvest," which is a lot of fun to listen to. But when you're playing it, you're counting beats and there's tempo changes. Uh, I mean, it's like driving through L.A. <laughs> Do you know if you sat in with Henry frequently, or was it kind of just a you know an occasional thing? I wasn't counting. Yeah. Uh, I just take the joys and the the lollipops as they come. <laughs> Fair enough. I've never heard your project Dos Hermanos. Can you describe it to me? Uh, Bob and I got together. Bob Brayloff. The, the pivotal event was at Jerry's memorial service, hmm. and we were running how we can can continue. And I mentioned to Bob that I'm sure Jerry would have wanted us to keep playing music, and we were already getting get getting together for improvisatory sessions just going out there and into the galaxy and seeing what we discovered and we discovered things and we started putting it on the stage in front of people and amazingly enough we got away with it we've done about a half dozen cds wow of of more than 50 shows and uh it's been a wild ride it's it's sort of like the the the, uh, jams of the grateful dead right and f- focusing on that and seeing where it will go. I remember back in the 60s at the Fillmore and Avalon, the jams were what the audience liked. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like some bands from that time where they expect you to play your hits. Right. And you're sort of trapped into that, especially if you're a band that doesn't have that many hits, which wasn't a problem with Grateful Dead or Jefferson Starship, with, with whom I've toured, toured also. But uh, Bob and I get into the edgy stuff, and we might just make up something totally new on any given moment. 
have you heard any of the like um more recent recordings that have come out uh from your era of the band precious few yeah uh i i don't uh I don't want to misspeak or, or say too much about it. I, I applaud their success. Uh, I'm very happy for them. Mm-hmm. It's just not the same thing as what we were doing 50 years ago. Right. If someone listening, I'm one of them actually, that has never heard any of your solo albums like under your own name outside of The Grateful Dead, where would you mm-hmm. point them first? What's a good good starting point? Hmm. There are a couple of decent ones on relics. I've self-produced a couple. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one called uh, Deep Expressions Long Time Known, which is available on CD Baby. And it's mainly uh, stepchildren of opportunity, uh, recordings that I had uh, made here and there. Uh, for instance, I did a film score in Los Angeles in 1972, and they had a drippingly classy Neupert harpsichord and there was some studio time left, so I said, hey, could you roll tape? Well, I have that at the harpsichord. And I recorded <laughs> some Scarlatti, some Bach, mm-hmm. some Couperin, and uh, I, I got through them by the skin of my teeth, and items like that are on it. I, I played on the radio in San Francisco for sa- sort of a San Francisco version of Prairie Home Companion. Uh, they would hate me for saying that, but I'll say it anyway, because I guess the idea across. <laughs> And uh, I was the Paul Schaefer character to mix the metaphor further. Right. And uh, I got away with all sorts of stuff. I would play uh, movements from Ravel, Ragtime, and I got a whole bunch of air checks from that. So that's what is on that CD. Uh, My horizons are deliberately wide, and I'm still exploring. uh, Maybe connections will come up together sometime. Yeah. What's next? Uh, it sure is. Now that the first baseman named who? <laughs> Are you still performing? Oh yes, I have uh, some Dos Hermanos shows coming up uh, in the summer. Also, Live Dead '69, which is a legacy band as opposed to a tribute band. Mm-hmm. Legacy band in that uh, Mark Karen, Slick Aguilar. We didn't learn these tunes from a book we got at Guitar Center. Right, <laughs> I got them closer to the source, and we will be going back to England in April. It'll be our fifth trip there. Oh wow! And uh, who knows what else might come up? Is there somewhere people can go to find tour dates, etc.? Uh, look up Live Dead '69, or Dos Hermanos, or my own website. Which all you need to know is how to spell my name, and uh, there you jolly well are. Right on. Tom, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Well, let me know if anything of this bubbles to the electronic surface. I sure will. Thank you. <laughs> and all best. Thank you for your kind attention. Yeah, thank you. Take care. You well. Bye. See, Brant, as the bishop said to the actress. What? I, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember the what I'm supposed to say. Oh man, well you got to go back and listen to the interview. But another great interview, hey? Like I feel I've said this a zillion times whenever we have people on the show. I just feel so fortunate that people will spend their time with us and share and I feel very privileged to document this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, big time. Uh this album that Tom mentions um with Henry and and himself, Bruce Anderson and Dale Sophia from MX80 and then drummer Lucas Leggetti. 
I didn't know it, it existed. Um, you can hear it about half of it on the Cuneiform Bandcamp page. Instro psych jazz rock. That's definitely worth a listen. That band's called Siamese Stepbrothers, by the way, Ryan. Check ah. that out. And, you know, as an aside, while you're on the Cuneiform Bandcamp page, uh, be sure to check out Roger Miller's Interpretations for Solo Electric Guitar and A Love Supreme Electric featuring Henry Kaiser, Mike Watt, Vinnie Golina, John Hanrahan, and Wayne Pete. Good stuff. Oh, yeah. I ordered that double CD. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. But, yeah, great chat with Tom. So can I spiel a bit for you about uh, three-inch CDs then before we get over to <laughs> History Lesson Part 2? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Okay, okay. I love this. It's so stupid. I love it. So <laughs> again, uh, here's a great spiel from Jim Rulin's excellent book, Corporate Rock Sucks. If you don't have this, give your head a shake. Go buy it. Here we go. And he's talking about uh, the onslaught of records released in 1988 and how they were re re-releasing a lot of New Alliance uh, records as well, for example. Then he goes on to this. SST also made an unusual foray into emerging technology by issuing a series of three-inch miniature compact discs. These mini-discs could hold only about 20 minutes of music compared to regular-sized CDs, which could store up to approximately 75 minutes of music, more than a record or a cassette. The first SST mini-CDs, The Descendants' Fat and The Minutemen's Joy, came out in 1987. These were followed up in 88 by Brian Ritchie's Sun Ra, Man from Outer Space, Bad Brain's Spirit Electricity, Henry Kaiser's Alternate Versions, and Mini Plot, a mini-disc companion to the full-length compilation The Melting Plot. So, hey, man, you know what? For posterity, two paragraphs on three-inch CDs. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into this one. History lesson, part two. Brent, you know, on the topic of last time ever, maybe, I'm going to hit you with a spaceman spiel because you never know when it's going to be your last. Is this uh, First Harvest? I don't think so because this came out in 88. This is, this is in the 1989's First Harvest section hmm. of the SST catalog, and it's on Henry Kaiser alternate versions. Here we go. Four unreleased recordings from explorative master guitarist Kaiser, including a new take on I'm So Glad, Tom Constantin on Mason's Children, and the first American recording of Soviet keyboardist Sergei Kirokin. SST 237, 3-inch CD only, $6.50. Hmm. Now, I think the fact that they call out TC-specific Tom Constantin in this ad, I think that that really supports your theory. Oh yeah, big time, man. Uh, all right, so speaking of TC, the first track is Mason's Children, credited to Bob Weir, Jerry Garcia, Phil Esch, and Robert Hunter, but many uh, dead historians think it was probably just Garcia Hunter. Uh, the Grateful Dead version is a bit of a rarity, written and recorded for Working Man's Dead in 1970, but not released at the time. Um, there is a studio version of it on various archive releases and several, you know, several live versions on a couple dick pics from that era and stuff. Apparently they only played it about 20 times around 69, 70, and then dropped it from their set. Um, Robert Hunter, who was the dead lyricist has, has said the lyrics deal obliquely with Altamont. Mm. 
We heard Henry's version of this on episode 198, Those Who Know History. It's the opening track there also. Uh, we've got Hillary and John Haynes on bass and drums, respectively. Carrie Sheldon on vocals. Basically, the Henry Kaiser Band minus Bruce Anderson. And I'm filling that role here on guitar and lead vocals, David Gans. I'm also 99% certain this is the exact same tr uh, bed tracks with some new guitar overdubs from Henry, it sounds like to me, and keyboards from Tom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, on the back of the three-inch CD, though, it does say this is a very different alternate version of a circa 1969 Grateful Dead song that I first recorded for SST-198. Those who know history are doomed to repeat it, which also features a long, dark star. Uh, again, that was a, a Grateful Dead song, right? Yep, that was our ballot result pick, actually. Yeah, that was a good one. Uh, so in 1995, Henry Kaiser released an album called Eternity Blue with many of these same players uh, and some others. And this song is, again, the lead track, this exact version. Um, it's mostly dead covers. Um, it also has a live version of Dark Star from the double LP Heart's Desire, which is um, the Henry Kaiser band live with Tom Constantin. Uh, that record... Uh, Eternity Blue is available digitally, so you can hear this on all the streaming sites. I went back into my uh, my duo tang from uh, from episode 198 just to see what I thought about this track, and I wrote down the same comment both times listening to it independently. I wrote down that it sounds like a musical theme song to me or something like that from a musical. I wrote that for both episodes, like 40 episodes apart. Speaking of uh, a Love Supreme, that live um, Dark Star that they do that's on Eternity Blue and also the, the Heart's Desire live album uh, is 20 minutes long and it incorporates um, John Coltrane's A Love Supreme into the middle of it. Mm. I think, you know, this Mason's Children is a cooler song than it gets credit for in, in some dead circles. I really like it and I really like this version. Uh, the next track is I'm So Glad. So this was the lead track on episode 222, Remarrying for Money, performed on that record instrumentally by Henry, Hillary, and John. It's a traditional tune, but Henry told us for that episode he learned it from the Skip James version, and I think he, he mentions that on the back of the CD as well. Yeah, on the back of the CD it says, the two best-known recordings of this traditional country blues were by Skip James and Cream. I have recorded an instrumental version of this on SST-222, Remarrying for Money. This one has got um, Carrie on the vocals on it, and I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of this version with the vocals. It's it's good stuck in my head, like, but not in a good way. Yeah, uh, I didn't mind it. Um... As with Mason's Children, I'm pretty sure this is the same track, um, same backing track. She's mm. a good singer. Um, unfortunately, this version has never been tacked on to any of his other releases, as far as I can tell. Um, certainly not anything released digitally. So unless you have this, you probably are not going to be able to check this song out. This three, I, this, unless you have this three-inch CD. Yeah, that's what I mean, and something to play it on. <laughs> yeah, so good luck. Yeah, it might be on YouTube, but I don't think it is. Now now you're jealous of me, aren't you? Yeah, big time, yeah. Uh, the next one is Seeing Red. So shortly after this came out, this CD, in 1989, Henry released an album with Sergei Kirikonen. 
uh, called Popular Science on Rykodisc. Sergei was a Russian composer, pianist, experimental artist, actor. He, I don't know if you read anything about this, Ryan, but he shot to fame in 1991. He went on Leningrad television. And this is like right after the fall of the Soviet Union or right before it, you know, when, when things were first just kind of starting to open up a little bit. Uh, and he was impersonating a, a historian and he claimed Vladimir Lenin consumed large quantities of psychedelic mushrooms and that he eventually became a mushroom himself. And like, <laughs> because of all the, the censorship, all those years, you know, stuff like this just did not happen on Soviet television. And there was apparently 11.3 million people watching the interview, which was totally deadpan. <laughs> like he didn't break character. And, um, apparently many of those 11.3 million people took it, uh, you know, at face value. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Performed on Synclavier though. Hey. Yeah. So you can hear the, the popular science album streaming. Uh, it's worth checking out if you're looking for some insanity, um, it's mainly the two of them on uh, Sinclavier's, although there's some shredding from Henry on the album too, not on this song though. Uh, I'm not going to get too into what the Sinclavier is as an instrument because I probably couldn't explain it anyways, but if you haven't heard our interview with Henry on episode 118, I'd give it a listen. Uh, that album, 118, Devil in the Drain, was all composed on, on one. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the lead track on Popular Science. The, the album and it, it's a it's a weird one bird calls what sounds like a xylophone but I'm sure it's all done on the synclavier um, uh, the whole thing just sounds like some theme song to some demented TV show or something yeah steel drums bird sounds like you said there's some pizzicato string sounds some synth blasts for people who know the Frank Zappa Civilization records, you know, and like them, this is right up your alley. Yeah, I heard this get compared, actually, in some reviews, the Popular Science album to to some of that later era Zappa stuff. Yeah. The keyboard, the synclavier, and, and the computer, you know, you can do anything on it, but they also just happen to sound a lot like synclavier-composed music every time you hear them. Yeah. And then the last track is Special Rider Blues. So we heard an instrumental version of this on the cassette, only on the cassette version of Those Who Know History. It was not on the LP or CD. It's a traditional blues song recorded by Sunhouse, Skip James, many others. Um, the instro version has Scott D. of Colby on slide. This has him also on slide and vocals. And if you, yeah. have, if you haven't heard our chat with Scott on episode 151, you, sh- you should, so you can hear how he kind of developed his, his own unique style of slide playing. I love this version. Scott can really belt it out. And yeah. I, ha- I have a thing for this style of blues. I don't know if you'd call it, you know, Delta blues or, but you know, the style where the, there's no real chorus, but it's kind of a hymnal and the, the vocal melody kind of matches up with the slide part. Yeah, I would agree. This I, is a highlight for me on this, and I love this vocal version. Yeah, I feel like he would have had to sing it live because his vocal totally matches the the exact the guitar, the exact cadence on the guitar. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's feeling it, you know, in his hands and his vocals at the same time for sure. Yeah, this ends with a totally haunting solo from Scott too. The the slide playing is just yep. just amazing. Um, and you can hear this digitally as a bonus track on Henry's 1984 album, It's a Wonderful Life. How about the cover art, Ryan? Uh, 
Henry playing a Strat. You don't usually see him playing a, a normal guitar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's unmistakably a Strat because obviously it has the shape, but the the uh, the name on the headstock really jumps out because of the the coloration. It's just basically a blue and green uh, image of him playing a Strat. It's just wild. Of course, it's a totally Floyd Rose Strat, though. Of course, yeah got to be all Floyd grosed up on it with yellow lettering. And then uh, the back is just blue and green. And of course, Henry's uh, annotated all of the tracks. I've read some of that before um, as we were going through the tracks. Photo, cover photo by Naomi Peterson, though. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. That's cool. It's always good to have some, yeah, always good to have some Naomi on. And uh, she definitely captured a great shot of uh, Henry just shredding his Work in the whammy bar on the Floyd Rose. Perfect. Ballot result? Yeah, man. Ballot result. So I feel like we kind of gave it away, but maybe I'm wrong because for me, I'm going with Special Rider Blues. That's my favorite for sure. Yeah, that's mine too, but I could have gone with Mason's Children as well. I love Mason's Children, that big build up at the ending and then it just starts rocking. But, you know, Special Rider Blues is a really good song. Yeah, I love this version. And you know what? I feel like uh, a good reminder for folks on Scott D. of Colby. Go back and check out that record too. Yeah. Hey, Ryan, thanks to Tom and David for being on our show. Both super great guys. Yeah, totally. All right, what's next week? Next week, Brant, are you feeling swa? I think so. I think I'm Okay, swa. well, you better be. <laughs> you better be because uh, it's SST. 238 the swa winter lp so cool to get back into swa and we've got a special guest yeah we've got philo on the show hey everyone thanks for listening you can find us on facebook instagram twitter tumblr all at mojack pod we post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show our blog is mojackpod.com please check it out for some exclusive content If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.